0: This SCCM iCritical Critical Care Podcast is sponsored by Arjo, a global supplier of medical devices, services, and solutions that have improved quality of life for people with reduced mobility and age-related health challenges since 1957. Arjo contributes to a sustainable healthcare system, always with people in mind. For more
1: information, go to www.arjo.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Critical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. Today, I will be speaking with Wes Ely, MD, MPH, about his talk, Early Mobility in Critically Ill Patients, More to Come, given at the Multiprofessional critical care review course in July. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine and critical care at Vanderbilt School of Medicine, Center for Health Services Research. He is also the Associate Director of Aging Research at the VA Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us if you have any disclosures before we get started, that would be great.
2: Sure. I'm supported by the VA and by the National Institute of Health, and those disclosures are basically federal funding disclosures, and I also have done some teaching for continuing medical education work that has been sponsored by companies including Pfizer and Orion.
1: Great. Before we get started talking about the uh, talk that you gave at the Multidisciplinary Critical Care Conference, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to know what got you interested in the areas of outcomes research in the ICU, uh, particularly your notable work on delirium in the ICU.
2: Well, when I was a resident and then a fellow, I was a very busy clinician in the outpatient setting. And when I came over to Vanderbilt from Wake Forest after I would published the article on Spontaneous Breathing Trials in the New England Journal of Medicine, the next question in my mind was, gosh, you know, what would be the natural extension of getting people off of ventilators earlier? And I started thinking, well, it should make a difference to their lives. So I should be able to see something in the clinic, in the outpatient setting, that would make a difference if we get them off the ventilator earlier. And so I started watching a lot what the patients were telling me in the clinic. And what I started hearing was, well, I mean, i survived, but I'm not getting back to my normal life. I got fired from my job, or I can't remember people's names, or I can't walk around the way I used to walk. And there was a combination of neck-up and neck-down problems that these people were experiencing in the mid-'90s and late-'90s that I thought that had to have come from the ICU. So our job is not done yet. We're not, we're not doing a good enough job at creating survivorship from the ICU.
1: That's uh interesting way to get to that point because, as you know, most of our research in critical care has really focused on mortality and ventilator-free days and sort of hospital survivorship. What do we know now that's different about critical care survivorship?
2: What we know is that our job is way beyond just whether or not I can get somebody off of a ventilator, a blower, or vasopressors. And back in the 90s and in the early 2000s, we thought that our entire job when somebody came to the ICU was simply to get them to survive. And now what we know is that if we convert them from the, the dead column into the living column, but they leave the hospital and they can't do what, they, what made them happy, that what kind of survivorship is that? And what, to define it from, a, from an objective perspective and a, and, a, and a qualitative perspective, we now know that people have tremendous ICU-acquired weakness in the form of a motor sensory myoneuropathy from a neck down perspective and from a neck up perspective we've now done the epidemiological research which tells us that especially after delirium in the ICU but even without delirium in the ICU we have got people leaving with a new ICU acquired dementia which looks a lot like Alzheimer's disease and manifests itself by way of memory and executive dysfunction so disabling that people really lose their joie de vie, they lose their ability to work, to be the matrix and the patriarchs of their family, and it's totally devastating
1: to them and their, and their loved ones. And you, you mentioned some of the studies there about the motor neuron uh, atrophy. What do we know about that, and what precipitates it, and what, what can we do about it?
2: Well, if you just take, for example, a couple of major studies, if you take Levine's study in the New England Journal in 2008. They found a 57% reduction in cross sectional area of muscle fibers, and that was just after 20 to 70 hours of uh, diaphragm inactivity. If you take the uh, puthi Chiari study, that's a difficult name to pronounce, but that was JAMA in in 2013, they found ultrasound documented reductions in in muscle bed size after, uh, you know, according to two to four, six, eight days of ICU admission. So these are just two objective, high-impact profile uh, investigations which documented we have real muscle disease, and we now know we have real nerve disease in these patients as well. And what's, what's really fascinating about it is if you go back in time, Osler and Olson were describing this stuff back in the early 1900s and mid-1900s, 1915, 1950s. Uh, but the modern-day studies started coming out in the 80s and 90s, Bolton and Latronico in their uh, investigations, which were small studies—five, twenty-five people, uh, just case series—but we've added to those small original, you know, landmark observational studies. These larger, more scientific and mechanistic studies to to show that, you know, kind of Houston, we have a problem. Our, our ICU patients are getting a major acquired disease. And most of my career has been spent, and the and the Vanderbilt ICU Delirium and Cognitive Impairment Study Group has been spent studying the the brain difficulties after the ICU, but now Nate Brummel in our group and and joining others around the country, like Terry Huff in in Seattle, are are really getting much more deep into this work of the the muscle and nerve uh, disability.
1: So I know that several clinicians, when I speak about this, get uh, confused because we had some early randomized controlled trials that showed that we could do something about this, and then maybe some later ones that really kind of tore that idea down. In your talk, you really got to the heart of this and sort of analyzed the four big randomized controlled trials. And I wondered if you could summarize your thinking on this after spending time looking at those studies in detail.
2: Sure. I have. These these four studies are basically the Schweikert study, which was in 2009, and then came Moss and Morris in 2016, and then Schaller, which was in Lancet in 2016 as well later on, but what happened in these investigations was that uh, Schweikert demonstrated in their, uh, in their study, which was I guess it was uh, about a hundred, just over a hundred people, that what was an intervention of early, inter- early intervention of, of early mobilization made a big difference in the outcomes of their patients. They started this intervention only a day and a half in to the ICU stay on average versus the control arm, and this is very important, which was about seven and a half days in when they started getting their their mobility going. And that difference between whether or not you started mobilizing patients at one and a half days versus seven and a half days made a huge, uh, there, there was a huge outcomes difference in terms of ADLs improving earlier, reduction in delirium by two days, length of stay on the ventilator improved. And so this early signal, which was seven years earlier than the Moss and Morris and Schaller studies made everybody super excited. Wow, let's get in there early, let's do something, and uh, let's make a difference. And probably in your ICUs, did you, were you taught this in your ICUs about let's get early mobility going? And I'm curious to turn a question back on you before we get on to the, the, the newer studies. How were you raised about this?
1: Yeah, I was uh, definitely indoctrinated by uh, Ajit Vinayak who had trained at the University of Chicago uh, about getting people not only off the ventilator but moving quick, quickly. Uh, and we we kind of harped on it every day, but I will also say that you know there always seemed to be a, a barrier in the way uh, you know complaints about or not complaints but challenges with staffing or uh, moving people. But I, I know that there were many days as a fellow that uh, one of my jobs was to make sure that the patients got out of bed and got moving, and that was right, one okay. of his that was and, one of his passions, uh, and he kind of passed on to me as and, well.
2: Good, good, and I'm glad to hear that, and yet at the same time, I'm glad to hear that you're admitting that this is going to be very difficult. And before I get back to the the subsequent studies that have come out, we're, we're going to come back to that. Let's just point out that this led to a movement, if you will. Dale Needham at Johns Hopkins is somebody who's really led this, and Margaret Herridge, we haven't mentioned her studies yet, but her landmark New England Journal studies at one year and five years and then Dale's incredible program at Johns Hopkins where he's got this, uh, this great course that people come to from all over the world to learn about early mobility and its intersection with the brain and the body. Uh, these are some of the world leaders in this area. This movement was embraced by many and kind of blown off by others or tried and failed by, by many. What that eventually led to that the SCCM responded to, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, was that they developed the IC Liberation Program sponsored by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation after he had gotten sick in the ICU and and said, well, we need to do a better job with ICU care. So with a grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the SECM said, let's start the ICU liberation as a way of enacting the the PAD guidelines, the pain, agitation, and delirium guidelines. And uh, for 80 medical centers around the United States and Puerto Rico and and Canada, we started implementing the ABCDEF bundle, the, the A2F bundle, which is a bundle created out of the literature, there's about 35 to 40 New England Journal, Lancet, and JAMA papers that created that bundle. And if you just go down from New England Journal, Lancet, and JAMA, there's about 400 papers that, that were used to create this A2F bundle. So all of us all over the world have done our research and have published papers which essentially make the A2F bundle and uh, the E in there is early mobility which is what you just described and the, the short form of what I wanted to tell you we learned from IC liberation was that some hospitals of those 80 did a great job of getting the patients up and at them and moving on ventilators early and others had a bigger difficulty and it wasn't tied by the way to whether or not you had a physical therapist, an occupational therapist dedicated to the unit it was more was your culture one which was apt to change and, and, and willing to change or are you stuck? And that was the bigger determinant of whether or not in 2014, 15, 16, we were getting people up in those, in those particular
1: ICUs, which we wanting to change. That, that's a really interesting uh, observation and probably one that needs a, a whole podcast to itself, which is, is how do you find the ability to take stuck organizations and move them into adopter organizations um, and leveraging yeah. those, those key points. Um, and, if you, and we won't be able to we won't be
2: able to unpack all of that today. But let me say that what we can do is let's go to what may be some of the reasons why there were difficulties or differences in the investigations. Okay, what I'd like to do uh, right now, Kyle, is is point out for you what what we did to learn when we compared them side by side.
1: That would, okay? that would be great.
2: All right. So when you then move from Schweikert over to the Moss and Moore study, what you find is that. There's a difference in the the start time of the intervention and the intersection between sedation and this mobility intervention. And those two things to me uh, matter a lot here. So, for example, instead of intervening at one and a half days, as was done in Schweikert, Moss's intervention was set to start, well, I don't know what it was set to start at, but it actually started around eight days. And Morris's started around three days. So both of them were started considerably later than when Schweikert and J.P. Kress and Jesse Hall and the others in University of Chicago, when they set out to get their patients out of the bed. And one of the arguments you could make there is that starting intervention later allows more muscle and nerve disease to accrue so that by the time you get the intervention going, the damage is done. And to support that hypothesis, if you then go to the Schaller study, which is the fourth of these big studies published, it was a Lancet paper, which was very positive, they started their intervention at two days, so earlier. So you've got four major studies, the first one and the fourth one of which were very positive in terms of the intervention changing outcomes, reducing delirium and changing length of stay in the ICU and hospital and ventilator time, and the middle two not doing anything at all, the delirium or length of stay. And the, the bookends, the ones that were positive, started the intervention early at one and a half and two days And the middle two investigations, Moss and Morris, didn't see a change, and they intervened at eight days and three days respectively. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah, that was one of the things that I uh, loved about your talk was how you really highlight uh, that, you know, not only were the interventions different, but uh, really in some ways I feel like the the two bookend studies um, really advocate for the, the A to F bundle and the importance of the whole bundle.
2: Right now, let's get to that piece because that's the next part we have to unpack for the listener here. So then, if you look at so all of the interventions were PT or OT that that's that was consistent across all four. But then, if you look at the the way that sedation was handled in the ventilator in in these studies, it's very very different. The bookend studies, Schweikert and Schaller, both enforced a daily spontaneous awakening trial, which by definition for the listener that means that each day, unless the patient's in it, well, everybody gets their sedation turned off and also even narcotics unless they're in active pain. So a daily spontaneous awakening trial. And that's, that's the second step of the A to F bundle. The first step is, is assessing, managing pain. The A is for assessment there for pain because we wanted pain to be at the top of the A to F bundle. And then we moved, the B is both SATs and SBTs. So to do both SAT and SBT, Schaller and Schweikert did that. But Moss, had benzos and narcotics used in large measure throughout and, and their stopping wasn't enforced. And Morris just outright didn't have an SAT. It was allowed to be up to the practicing clinician to determine how to handle those drugs. And consequently, I think the patients got a lot more of those drugs farther into their ICU stay than did Schweikert and Schaller's patients who in the intervention group definitely had, they were better set up to to take Advantage of the intervention, if you might put it that way. In other words, you can't take advantage of early mobility if you're sedated into the Stone Age and you're grogging out in the bed. Okay, absolutely. So, uh,
1: does
2: that make sense? Now, let me tell you a little story. I think I think the listeners like stories. Polly Bailey and Terry Klemmer and Vicky Spuler. These are three people from Utah who, back in the '80s, were mobilizing patients on the ventilator. And, and by the way. In, in San Francisco General and many hospitals around the country, we were mobilizing people back in the 70s on ventilators. I've got beautiful pictures of people walking with ET tubes on the ventilator back in the 70s and 80s. What happened that made that go away was the advent of fancier and more difficult forms of mechanical ventilation, like inverse ratio, etc. When I was a fellow, we were doing two-to-one IRV, and you had to paralyze and sedate deeply. And We got used to that, and we kept it going, which was a left turn in critical care. But anyway, the idea of getting patients off completely of sedation each, each day was something that Polly Bailey and Vicki Spieler and Terry Klemmer at Utah knew they had to do. And when, when, uh, when Roy Brower from Hopkins tells this story about going to visit them and then having them come to Hopkins, uh, the story goes like this, that the first patient, they asked Polly, what would you do in this patient? And Polly said, well, I would... They were, talking about, they were talking about mobility. They wanted to know what she would do re- regarding to mobility. She said, well, first I would stop sedation. And then was <laughs> the next bed, and, well, Polly, what would you do here regarding mobility? And she said, well, the first thing I'd do is I'd use less sedation. And the third bed and so on. So the, the mantra became you first got to stop the sedatives and get them waking up, and that's why the B and the ABCDF bundle is so naturally happening before the E. You've got to assess for pain. You've got to do both SATs and SBTs. You've got to consider the choice of drug, monitor for delirium, and then get to early mobility, and all of this is interconnected, it's interwoven, and inextricable. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, and actually, I actually love that story. I've heard similar stories of, uh, from um People talking about, you know, the, when the implementation of the SAT and SBT every day was, we just need to wake this patient up, we just need to wake this patient up. Uh, and I think it's probably a fairly powerful message to be coming from some of the leaders in that area. What was your experience bringing this out the first time? Because I can imagine that it going from a sedation, situation where you're paralyzed and sedating every patient and then waking them up when they're close to all better to waking up someone every day caused uh, a few eyebrows to be raised.
2: It did, and, and you know, when we were doing the ABC study, which was first authored by Tim Gerard and uh, and published in Lancet, that was a study that showed that if you couple the SAT and the SBT together, that you actually shave four days off of the ICU and, and and hospital stay, and we saw a 15% absolute reduction in mortality. Well, what's interesting is that during that investigation, the nurses didn't think it was working. And what was happening was that they thought that they were on every patient turning the drugs back on and ramping them up but it wasn't true when we actually looked at the data the intervention arm of the abc study had actually cut in half the benzo use and the narcotic use and the nurses didn't weren't aware of it and the reason that we you know afterwards we did some post study interviews and and tried to really qualitatively unpack what had happened they just kept remembering the problem patients
1: which right. were
2: few and far between but they stood out anecdotally. So I think it's important for all of the listeners to realize that when you hear your nurse say, this is hard or it doesn't work, that's because they're looking at the person who got hyperactively delirious or pulled out their ET tube or something, but that's actually very rare. Most people, you just turn the drugs off, and they just totally tolerate it. It's g- completely uneventful, except they're ready to be off the ventilator a lot sooner, and things go very well. But, so don't let the exceptions dictate how you handle your ICU. Make your ICU protocols and the ways you manage your patient for the majority of your patients, and then your exceptions will be something you deviate from that standard of care, that usual care. Does that make sense?
1: It does, and it's amazing how those exceptions can really come back to reinforce the behavior that we don't want sometimes.
2: Let's close the loop on the four comparisons. Let's make sure that the listener realizes that the bookend studies of Schweikert and Schaller, which were 2009 and 2016, those studies had the consistent message that activities of daily living were improved, independence was doubled, delirium was reduced by two days in Schweikert, by three days in Schaller, and ventilator time and ICU hospital stay were improved in these investigations. So when you bring a mobility intervention together with the reduction in sedation, we see very good things happening, and when you don't, when you don't couple these and have the whole bundle together, we see squat. We see nothing. No change in outcomes, and that's that's kind of the closing the loop on on this comparison that we did at the FCCM board review course.
1: Well, I know from experience, having one of your uh, former residents now a fellow here at UVA, uh, we hear about uh, how you talk about this on rounds every day, and so. One of the things that I think would be helpful for the listeners is uh, how have you ingrained this in the culture at Vanderbilt, and, and what do you see in the, the clinic now when your patients come back to you?
2: Oh, very good uh, question. So here, here's
1: what rounds look like.
2: On a, on a daily basis, we'll get to the new patient's bed. We're, we're there either at the bed or right outside the room, and then we go in the room always to examine the patient and bring the whole patient, you know, patient care at the bedside, eye-to-eye contact is is the humane way that we have to practice. We have to get our eyes off of the beeps and buzzers and back down onto the patient. And that's one of the reasons I like the A-to-F bundle so much is that it, it really makes you talk to the patient, look at the patient, touch the patient, because that's, you can't do the bundle without that. So the nurse will first start and present to us the A-to-F bundle. It takes about 30 seconds for him or her to do that. Then the intern or resident, if you're in a teaching hospital, will finish the plan for the day and then we look at the patient's family. The F is for family and we'll have the family and we'll give them a lay update of what's going on and then we allow them to have one to two minutes to ask questions. This actually reduces a lot the need for patient conferences later in the day, patient family conferences. It saves a lot of time and it does not delay rounds. We get through rounds in a very efficient and expedient manner. We cover all these things which I really consider patient safety. This is about patient safety and patient comfort and it's about efficiently making sure that we get people off of these interventions, which were put on for good measure, good reasons, but should not stay on any longer than are, they are required. And that, that's kind of the way rounds work. And what happens is that we set up people who have been either in shock or in sepsis or in delirium for a couple of days, and we bring those people back to a post-ICU clinic. We call it our ICU recovery center, and Jim Jackson and Joanna Stalling and uh, Sarah Bloom and and our, uh, our our intensivist, whose name is Carla Steven, they run this clinic. And when they see the people back, we're seeing over time that, that our patients are much more thankful and, and happy about the way that their survivorship is going. Now, we, have, we still have people come from other centers. I was on the phone yesterday with an ICU survivor who is five years out. And some of the things that the ICU survivor told me were, you know, I started getting better – but I quit getting better. And now I can't relate to my family. They can't relate to me. And I'm really getting worse now cognitively and physically. And can I come see your clinic? Can I come to the ICU recovery center? And and we're gonna engage this patient. We're gonna break all this down and try and help the entire human being to get recovered here. This is, I said to the patient yesterday, I said, we want all of you. We want your mind, your body, your spirit. And we're gonna focus on all of that when you come. And we can't just think that we Got you physically better and off life support, and think that we've done our job.
1: Yeah, that's a great story for us to uh, start to begin wrapping these things up. I wondered if there's anything else you'd like to share with our listeners uh, about uh, bringing uh, early mobility in the ADF bundle to the bedside, and, or any other uh, great uh, anecdotes you can share, so that we can break down some of the the horror stories we've heard and and focus on the positives.
2: Sure. Uh, one thing that, the, that that all the healthcare professionals listening need to be aware of is. The way you change this in your institution is not necessarily intuitive. You might think from previous QI programs, Kyle, that what you would do is say, "Well, in three months we're going to roll this out. It's going to be the whole ICU, and we're going to get this uh, this huge thing, this big gargantuan in, in, implementation program." That is a c- total loser. And what happens instead is that people it'll work for a couple of weeks and it falls flat on its face. What works a lot better, and what we we worked with the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement over many years now, and what they have taught us is that small tests of change and kind of a what can you do by Tuesday approach is way more successful. So what, the, what you should do in your hospital is say, look, what's, what's a nurse? Who's a nurse that, that wants to do this? Who's an agent of change? Let's go to that nurse's bedside, meet on Tuesday at 10, PM, 10 a.m., and at Tuesday at 10 a.m., we're going to take that patient who's failed in SBT, we're going to run the 8 F bundle, We're going to see what works, what doesn't work. On Wednesday, we're going to go back to the same bed, same patient, and we're going to learn how to implement this at one patient at a time. Then we'll go to a second patient and a third patient. But we're not going to roll out to the whole unit at once. We're going to allow this to be dribbled out. Instead of it by climbing Mount Everest, we're going to climb little hills at a time. And that's really a critical piece of success here.
1: That's a a great message for all of us to hear because I think you're right that when we think about uh, bringing the ADAF bundle, we often think about that like we do a lot of other quality improvement projects, which is we're going to roll this all the way out, and uh, and having done that a couple of times in my own ICU, I've seen the the stumbles that it causes, and I think that one patient, one day, is really the uh, a great place to start.
2: Thank you so much, Kyle, for letting me be a part of this, and if I can be of any assistance to anybody uh, who's listening, our ICU delirium website, uh, icudelirium.org, dot org. We're here; we can communicate with them on email or get on the phone, and we just want to help others to to make this change happening, because what we're doing with critical care is we're improving the lives of, of millions of people that we're never even gonna meet uh, at other institutions by all banding together to, to use these data, this data-driven approach, to do a better job in, in 2020 than we, than we did in 2010.
1: Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the I critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Infield.
0: This SCCM iCritical Care Podcast is sponsored by Arjo, a global supplier of medical devices, services, and solutions that have improved quality of life for people with reduced mobility and age-related health challenges since 1957. Arjo contributes to a sustainable health care system, always with people in mind. For more information, go to www.arjo.com. Kyle Enfield, M.D., is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of health care-associated conditions, including multi-drug-resistant organisms acquisition and health care-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.